But at the end of the day, if you really want to just break it down to pure economics, and I know we're the evil developer, but but for us, we don't we don't take that money and put it back in our pocket and run to the bank. Like we reinvest that into the quality of the fabric that we're producing because we mm-hmm. want to do this forever. I want to encourage everybody in our community, the development community, to do it better so that communities can start to understand the benefit of these products and then champion them. We've released over 40 episodes of 360 Degree City, covering a range of topics from cycling to public art to urban agriculture and much, much more. While we've explored issues and topics related to cities, we thought it might be helpful to spend some time focusing on the different actors that impact how we build our cities. So we've developed a multi-part series where I talk to different kinds of city builders about what they do, why they do it, and what unique approaches and challenges they represent. Our hope is that by the end of the series, you'll have some new perspectives on these actors and how to work with them, whether you're a seasoned city builder yourself or just starting to explore the complexity of the places we live. This week's episode is about the developer. I sit down with Al Karim Devani to discuss what it means to be a developer, the best of what they can bring to city building, and the problematic practices of that profession. And I'll give you a heads up, there are a few swears in this episode. Al got a little bit animated in the conversation, which I love, so let's dive in. My name is Al Karim Devani. I'm one of the co-founders at Round Square. Um, we're an established areas um, development company. Um, we actually redid our purpose and vision mission statement, and it was uh, thoughtful collisions um, that harbor placemaking. And so that's kind of what I think our company now does and how we kind of view ourselves from a 10,000 square feet kind of perspective. Awesome. That's a really catchy purpose. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Simple. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we're yeah. instructed to keep it less than seven words. So oh, it's okay. quite challenging when you do, when you do that. <laughs> yeah. So, everything yeah. that you do. Yes. Yeah. Seven words or less. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we want to dive into what uh, developers do. So um, maybe we could start with the process of development. So from land acquisition, financing, et cetera, can you walk people through the complexity uh, of that? Because I think a lot of assumptions are uh, you're sitting on a pile of money hmm. and then you just <laughs> build some things and then your pile gets bigger and it's that simple. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 we were just talking about this off the microphone. I think that might be the case for, for some of us, but not for all of us. And so, yeah, our company um, definitely doesn't have that privilege, but we're also honored by by the privilege that we have to do, to do good work in the city. And so, um, because we solely focus on established neighborhoods, um, um, we're looking at assembling parcels. So that's the first step. We're looking at sites that are assembled to hit a certain scale and magnitude in order for us to kind of activate ourselves and to de- deliver on the site. So we start we start by actively looking for sites. Once we identify a site, um, we typically sit down with a planner to tell us what the current um, zoning looks like, uh, what the current land use bylaw would allow us to deliver. And then we just basically do a, a really brief white card model of, of what current the zoning is and then we talk about what we think contextually might be possible uh, and if there is any room for us to rezone or, mm. or see a lift and I could so for Canmore for example 
technically we're not looking to rezone anything because we know the jurisdiction is quite challenging. And mm-hmm. so anything we're looking within Canmore, typically we're looking at how do we just bring our ability to program design um, and and use space differently than what's currently happening is our mandate there. And so identifying the site is, is obviously your very first step. Um, for us, the second step, um, because we are we don't have a bank of money just sitting around, is to activate a partnership strategy. And so we typically take our parcels to our investors and say, we've we've secured this site conditionally. Here's what we think we might be able to achieve. Um, what if it's a rezone or not? And here's what the end outcome could look like. Um, and so, yeah, we identify a parcel, identify what we can do on there, identify the money and make sure the money is interested in what we could potentially do there. And also identify all, all the risks, all the red flags. And right. so what are the things that can potentially go wrong? And obviously, you know, with our core business in Calgary, the very first thing that can go wrong is, um, you know, not a clean site, for example, um, you know, technical challenges on the site that make building prohibited that you don't find out until you kind of un- uncover that next layer, whether it's soil conditions, setbacks, road, road right of ways, all those different types of mechanics. And so really trying to identify those things. Um, but once you get through all that and we identify that we need to go through with the land use, uh, that is our biggest risk is mm-hmm. if we cannot get to an approval, um, what does the outcome on the inverse look like for us mm-hmm. and so that's why we invest you know probably considerably more than many inve- uh, many other developers do in that process of outreach chatting with the community um, but also then really focusing on the the human scale interaction is what is the tangible urban design benefits of our development to both community to people and to the future of these communities as they evolve um, and so it's hard for me to ever quantify how much that spend should be because I, I technically feel like it's the most important piece of the puzzle more so than the architecture um, than the construction all of those things is how do we create our first and most important hurdle is what is the tangible benefits and so mm-hmm. we go through and, and we look at the impacts and we go through risk assessment and if we we can kind of check those boxes off. We'll go to that next step of retaining, you know, our architect, mm-hmm. having them put a preliminary plan together for us. Um, you then take that plan and you cost it. So you try to come up, you know, you're throwing, you're throwing at a dartboard at this point because of the idea of how detailed those plans are are not as detailed as you'd like them to be because you don't want to invest a ton of money into architecture without knowing if you have outcome. And so you throw a number on the board and and basically you hope you can achieve that number based off of a preliminary set of drawings. Um, The next step is to obviously for us is to engage the city, um, identify, you know, through a pre-application meeting who our planner might be ask them, you know, what we're looking to do, really get them involved really early on Mm -hmm. to understand risks that maybe we weren't able to uncover. But that's one of the things I always tell communities and cities. It's like for us specifically is we're, we're doing a lot of our work on the front end before you even know we're active. It's not like we just pick up a site, we throw an architectural plan and then we bring it to you. It's like, no, we've done a lot of our own legwork to really, like I said, identify the risks, the opportunities and the benefits of what we're trying to achieve. Um, And so 
you know, you, you basically, you got your land, you got your plan, you got your money, and now you need your city is kind of how mm-hmm. I would say is mm-hmm. what the next step is. So um, once we get our city process and, and we kind of iron that out and we feel like we have them on board, obviously the next step is to to really get out to the community and start to really publicly engage them, get them informed, let mm-hmm. them know what we're doing, try to understand what they feel like concerns and risks are, um, all while trying to explain the benefits of what we're hoping to achieve. Um, And then obviously the last step for us is outcome. And so when you get to outcome, uh, process for us typically, I would say on average is lasting about a year to a year and a half. So it's yeah. not it's not a short time frame from the day that we identify a site, we take possession of that site, we close on that site to even getting approvals. And so on some of our projects, it's two years until we actually get to construction. <laughs> and so like you, you can you can kind of think about for us how much things can change <coughs> in two years, whether it be the economic climate, whether it be, you know, um, things that have changed from a constructability standpoint, um, costs can change. And so the risks are fairly large based on the fact that it takes us quite some time to mm-hmm. actually get into activation of those sites. And so one of the things that we talked about, you know, the future of development for us is how do we secure our pipeline to know that, you know, we have these other projects that we're working on and we've already kind of started to work on while we're doing what we're doing on a specific site. Right. And so, um, you know, at any given moment, we have 10 active sites, but none of them are in construction. They're all through some form of part of the development process because we're working our way. And so ideally you'd want to be constructing, you know, in, in, in multiples, uh, so you can kind of scale up towards getting everything completed. Um, but that, that's how I would identify what we do as developers. And so a lot of it is actually, it's building the right team. It's like mm-hmm. uh, it's it's going out and picking the best people um, that you think can add the most amount of value. Because you know, I'm not I'm not an architect. I'm not an urban planner. I'm not a landscape architect. And so, how do we really identify the best possible team to help us get to creating the best product, possible product? Mm-hmm. And so, when when you're uh, like you mentioned, there's there's so much time and money that goes into before you know it even is ready to go to approvals at the city. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> how, how do you um, at Round Square navigate that idea of um, there has to be feedback from the city, obviously, so you try to do that as early as possible. And then the similar to the community, because I, I know that there's, uh, you know, there will always be folks in the community that think that folks should be engaged before anything happens, mm-hmm. but you do need to understand what's possible on the site, scope that out, do some pre-design. How do, how do you navigate the all, all the conversations and the timing and the, that, that yeah. happen? And, you know, we, so we get that conversation all the time about engagement and the public and their input. And so the one of the things that I think is really important are what are the things that are on the table and what's off the table? Right. And oftentimes the things that are, are off the table are the things that they're most concerned about, unfortunately. Mm. Um, you know, we have to hit a certain number of units in order to be able to deliver a certain quality of product. And that's one of the things that I've been really keen about expressing to people is, you know, we could do a three-story development here, but it's not going to look the way that you may want it to look. Mm -hmm. And the quality is not going to benefit the community in the way that we think that we can actually, you know, benefit the community have we do four or five or six stories. Because technically, 
density ties itself very closely to affordability and quality. And I know people don't like to hear that because it's like, well, no, that's not true. Like if you did less units or you did them like this. And I think we can say all those things if we want, but at the end of the day, if you really want to just break it down to pure economics and I know we're the evil developer, but, but for us, we don't, we don't take that money and put it back in our pocket and run to the bank. Like we reinvest that into the quality of the fabric that we're producing because we mm-hmm. want to do this forever. Mm-hmm. I want to stop doing this and I want to encourage everybody in our community, the development community to do it better so that communities can start to understand the benefit of these products and then champion them. And so oftentimes what I struggle with is, is and I've had, you know, I've had deep conversations with other people uh, in community associations who, who lead them and they ask for advice about how they can be more productive. And I said, Focus the conversations on tangible benefits that you can win for your community. Mm -hmm. So you can win the street interface. You can win bike parking. You can win like the amount of commercial retail uses in the frontages. Those are all things that everybody is going to listen to you about because those are impactful. You can even oftentimes win uh, feedback on architecture. But when you jump into height, intensity and traffic, (laughs) <laughs> it's just it's mm-hmm. so mundane now that no one wants to hear those reasons as the reason to stop building sustainably within our communities. Mm-hmm. So I think changing the conversation about how do we tell you that the interface that we're creating at the ground level is really people human scale friendly um, and can really shape shift and transform a neighborhood. And we've seen examples of it uh, and we'll continue to try to drive that. Um, but just like you and I were talking, you know, off off of the mic is. We, we as Round Square need to deliver a few more of these so that we can then bring people to them and say, like, right, this right. is what we're trying to do for you, um, the city, the community, all the major stakeholders to say, help us do this. And like, let's put up less barriers to make projects like these more successful. Um, mm-hmm. And I know the fear for many is not everybody is like you not everybody is going to have the same thoughtful or intention and there's going to be developers that just want to build what they want to build that's cool but then let's work together myself yourself city included to make those better let's focus our energy on those guys rather than saying nothing about four stories here ever because that's when you start to get the monotony of of what you're actually not looking for Mm -hmm. yeah and that's that's i think a really important point we've tried in our practice to get folks to shift from uh you know it's 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 a free country so everyone can come at it how they want but strategically if you want to actually affect change to say to come at it from a yes no perspective then you're going to lose your audience right away. So you need the you need to have the nuance of if you're going to build this, then I think the the, the points about street interface and those kinds of things are super helpful because then there um, there can be a mutual gain here. Yeah. Um, but the either or just doesn't doesn't, totally. doesn't fly. And for me, like we've seen some of the tactics that we've taken already have a ripple effect in the development industry. And to me, that was kind of the whole point. Like you mm-hmm. know, we did the we did the art context on right. CY thirty three, and there was buildings that were ahead of us in the construction timeline that now are doing art contests or getting public art. Mm. And everyone's like, oh, they ripped you off. It's like no, like this is this is exactly what we wanted. Like we wanted the artists to get more more work, more pro, more profile, yeah. and we want our communities to have public art so it's 
like we did that, yes, as marketing, engagement, all the things, you know, like I'm not gonna lie, like I knew that that would help our outcome. But at the same time, I don't think it's wrong to say, this is gonna help our outcome and it's fucking kick ass. So yeah. we're doing both of them. Like, and, and I'm not gonna sit here and say, oh, well, you, you, you were conniving or you were cheating or you use that as leverage. It's like, I didn't do any of that. I did it because I think public art is awesome. I'm super excited about these murals and fuck yeah, I'm gonna take advantage of the fact that it is gonna help me towards outcome. Yeah. And if other developers are gonna use that as a tool, that's an actual amazing outcome. If they are now committing to public art when they never were, we just won another battle that we know can have massive cultural implications on the communities that we build. And so, you know, that that's part of what I think we as an organization are continuously looking at is, you know, and, and it's and we just talked about the risks of that as mm-hmm, well. Is mm-hmm. innovation and bravery is, is gonna be scary every single time because it's uncharted territory. But at the very least, we may not make as much money as everybody else, but I believe in 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 full circle and I believe if we do good work, the people that have you know, the most amount of influence or power or outcome, I think it comes back to us. And in mm-hmm. my mind, it's like, yeah, like if I came up with something and now everybody else is doing it, cool, what can I do next that right. everybody else can do is kind of the mentality that we talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the the, the simple, you know, mutual gains approach, uh, it just, yeah, the city wins if there's a lot more public art. Full stop. Totally. So if you if you can approach it in a way that benefits your specific developments and catalyze the industry, yeah. So that that that's motivation for others to do it then. Yep. And they're not paying for it, which is a huge saving grace. Yeah. yeah. Now the city doesn't have to take slack about a public art budget or how are they just like now we're creating a public art you know board or whatever to make those decisions because people don't like the art that they're getting. Well, guess what? You didn't pay for it. Yeah. We actually even gave the public a say to weigh in on what they thought was cool. Yeah. Um, and, and we're delivering it. And so to me, it's, it's, it's um, yeah, it's about just recognizing where things are in certain places and cities. Um, mm-hmm. And like I said, I don't, I think development can be very shallow in its lens. Mm-hmm. It can be about door count. It can be about rent rates. It could be about absorption. It could be about flipping. Like th- those are all the telltale signs of developers everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, our model is no different. Like this is the one thing I tell people, if I can't sell or I can't rent, I'm fucking, I'm dead in the water. Yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm gonna swear a lot because it's just who right. I am, but That's yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so we can censor that in the beginning. But yeah, like we, we, we are not, we're not, we don't have like the magic sauce that can make it so we don't mm-hmm. ever have to rent or sell units and just pretend we're doing fun stuff. Like I, I am held to the same loans, to the same interest rates, to the same requirements as everybody else, if mm-hmm. not worse, because yeah. I am smaller. So my challenges are significantly larger. The lenders don't respect me the way they would respect a Brookfield. Mm-hmm. Um, even the, the government doesn't insure me and won't give me a loan the way that it would give the bigger guys a loan. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's, there's massive structural issues in the system that we've, you know, inhibitedly created to try to mitigate risk, but we've also mitigated all types of innovation um, mm. and, and housing and forms because of it. Right, right. So that's, you know, that, so that systemic, the, you know, if the, how was it say, follow the money. So if, if it's easier to get money by doing same, same, then 
that's that's something that you know we we don't talk about in the city building world nope. at all nope. ever yeah and 100 percent is <clears throat> yeah. like you're gonna go fund a major developer who's delivered on major infrastructure and projects before who have built that thing 10 times over then you're gonna come and fund, fund you know ram square who's done it once who's trying to do it twice building looks nothing the same it's super different the mm-hmm. complications and the risks are there and so yeah like that's that's where we will continue to struggle and so like i think we've identified is i talked to everybody about in our company about this and even now on the outside you know we we have a ton of ideas like like boatloads of ideas and um i think about apple when when apple released the iphone 7 they probably had the iphone 10 and Mm. they just didn't give it to everybody because everybody wasn't ready for it but also they understood that everyone would buy the iPhone seven because it was brand new and Mm -hmm. it was different enough. And so for us, I think part of that is a lesson learned in how, how quickly do we want to innovate? How quickly do we bring our ideas to market? Because ultimately if the market doesn't absorb us or doesn't believe that we're doing this for them, then we have a problem. And so we can't, we can't like shoot over our market. Mm -hmm. And so we've been really tactical now about Let's introduce things as we feel like the market is ready to absorb them. And every market is different is one of the things that we're sure. seeing, like where Calgary is versus where Winnipeg is versus where Canmore is all completely different mm-hmm. in the spectrum. And so being obviously very aware, um, but also thinking about, about what does the future look like and mm-hmm. adaptable spaces and how do we build something that... Um, that we can transform, that can grow with with people as they grow. Um, you know, th- this would even apply to commercial retail spaces. One of the things sure. that we're seeing is people um, can no longer afford to, or there's a there's just a smaller percentage of people that can afford larger spaces hmm. at ground floor retail uses. And so, how do we create an environment where we have more people on commercial retail uses, smaller square footages, and you actually net more money? There's more management, mm-hmm. but your per square foot of retail costs go significantly higher because you're breaking out these spaces for them. And so it's kind of like the whole idea about co-working. How do we create retail working environments that are small enough, but also we want to be able to expand their footprints when mm-hmm. things shapeshift, transform. Like start a cupcake business, start at 1500. I realize I can't make that work. I need to go down to 500. Is there any way I can stay in my space? How do we, right. how do, we right. do that in, in my mind? And that's mm-hmm. part of you know how we try to figure out how to roll those type of things out mm-hmm. to better support the community at large. Right, right. So if, if we take a step back and think about developers at large and through your experience, obviously, mm-hmm. what are, what's kind of the some of the best kinds of expertise that developers bring to the city building process that's unique versus architects, planners, etc.? It's economics and costs. Yeah. I just feel like planners, architects, landscape architects, cities have absolutely no idea. Those are annoyances. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Just no real lens. And that's where we suffer, I would say, as a developer. Mm. Because we also get excited with the four other people in the room to try to deliver something that's never been done. But when you have four other people who have never done it, and you're the fifth person in there that's (laughs) never done it, and all five of us are like, we're going to go and do this. And it's like, oh, shit, I don't know. And now all four of them are gone, right? Because they've given Mm. you the plan, and now it's your job to go and execute it. And now you have this plan, and you're like... I actually have no idea how we're going to do this because Mm -hmm. market says it's basically next to impossible. Yeah. And so for me, it's, it's 
developers have done an extremely good job at bringing everything back and saying, this is all we're doing. Uh, we're not doing anything more and they pay the bill. So mm-hmm. like, you know, you're, you're going to agree as a planner, you're going to agree as an architect, you're going to agree as a landscape architect. And if you don't, it's like, get out of the room. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what the development industry has done to architects, to developers, mm-hmm. or sorry, to, to planners is they've normalized everything. Um, and so the risk is now we're seeing is, and as, as developers start to get a little bit more sophisticated and willing to take risks, I think the biggest fear is that the people in the room have absolutely no idea what it takes to deliver those mm. products. Mm-hmm. They can suggest them, but then they rely on a developer to deliver them. And it's like, to me, it's completely backwards. Like the most successful team is the one that could tell me what the impacts, costs, outlook is going to be. So if you're going to draw something, make sure you know what it costs. Mm -hmm. And I say that to everybody now, whether you're an architect in LA, whatever it is, a planner, if your expectation is for me to deliver on something, tell me what it will cost me to deliver it. Because it's not rocket science. Literally, it's teamwork. So those four can come up with something amazing and they could go to the trade tender list just as much as we can to figure out what it's going to cost. So I would say they become so much more powerful and informed if they themselves start to understand the cost of delivering. I, I think about that lots when we talk about building parks or public spaces or streets. Like, you know, my, my planning team is always super excited about trees and pedestrian pathways and how do we create cool spaces and i'm in my my head the whole time is like man that, that's gonna cost a lot of money mm-hmm. how do i pay for that and is that necessary for the outcome mm-hmm. um and so that i think that that's what i would say the developer is very very has to be very good at has to yeah. learn that and then the team if they want to become more empowered themselves has to understand how to do that as well Right. And so over the process of of time, multiple projects, evolution, it really what you're describing really speaks to the importance of uh, relationships and continued teamwork. You could see because if project one, it's on a developer, then for project two, that feedback loop comes to the team as they're trying to learn themselves and everything. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that is an important process. Um, there has to be authentic teamwork. So people mm-hmm. have to feel like they're responsible mm-hmm. to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a planner, you know, your work comes at the front end. But if the delivery of that product isn't quite what you expected it to be or quite what you wanted it to be, then I think it's they have, they have an obligation to get back involved and figure out what went wrong. What yeah, we could sure. we have done better? Why did the developer choose to only do Calmer Aspens versus X? Right. Obviously, it comes down to money, but then I think the question is, is where where is that dollar best reinvested? Yeah. Is it in a stamped concrete that looks super sweet or is it in a tree canopy? Mm-hmm. And those are, those are decisions that I think a planner probably has a lot of opinions on, um, more so than what the developer might even at times because they can't see that far ahead of what mm-hmm. might the benefit be. And so I think... I think for sure there is that feedback loop that can exist, but I think like I've seen architects now get super informed on the front end, even before they come to us because they don't want to suggest something unless they have now authenticated that that is even possible. Mm, And so it's it's a matter of like, it's, it's, it's changing the way that you perceive in those specific fields of what your reach and impact is because mm. it's far greater than what they actually anticipate I think at times mm-hmm. um, and, and you can in- 
influence your outcome significantly more if you're more informed about what it takes to deliver on that. Yeah. Yeah. That relationship, that's interesting. Like you mentioned outcome a few times. So the relationship between outcome tools and cost and how those relate to one another. And, you know, in, in uh, my, my home profession of planning, like for a long time, like actively ignorant of economic issues. Mm-hmm. I talked with Larry Beasley about this for this, this mini series. And, um, you know, that has to change if we want the outcomes. Yeah. Cause, cause planners definitely have views and totally. opinions on outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. You look at architects and urban designers who celebrate their, their, um, their planning and their architecture. Mm-hmm. Well, none of that is possible without a developer. Yeah. And yeah. And that's, and that's what I find it. And it, I have to, you know, having having worked with some pretty innovative developers, I've, it's got to be so frustrating for the sort of single uh, broad brush of the evil developer, like you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, look at any plan, concept, vision, etc. Who builds that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but you you look historically like like do you remember developers? Like when you think about, yeah, yeah. like, do we know who the developer behind yeah. the central library is? Yeah. No, but we all know Snow Hedda was the architect. Yeah. Um, planning is probably not as glorified as architecture is, yeah. but sometimes it is. Like, you know, when you walk down to the parks yeah. and, and you know that it was done by a planner, you, yeah. but no one knows who put the money in and that because yeah, yeah, it's like, sure. it's almost irrelevant. Like it's, yeah. the, it's, and, and, and so they've done a good job. I mean, developers have done a good job of staying sly and under the radar <laughs> and just getting yeah, paid yeah. because yeah, that's all, that's all they were really interested in was mm-hmm. they wanted to build something. They wanted to earn returns for their investors, for their REITs, pension funds, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they weren't concerned about the notoriety. Yeah. Uh, and they w- they are when it's like their legacy project. Yeah. So it's like you know whatever Telesky West Bank like yeah. when they're when they're those scale like it's all about the notoriety and yeah they want to be kind of front right and center. Mm-hmm. And to West Bank's credit, they've done an incredible job of building a brand reputation outside of whoever the architect is, right? Right. Because they've they've gone out and employed different architects, different collaborations to deliver different types of projects. Mm -hmm. And so uh, kind of second last question, uh, as as you think about uh, the future of cities and how they're evolving and having to evolve, um, what evolutions in the development industry do you think are necessary? I think half. How we how we want to build our cities is the very first question. What is the city of the future look like to us? Um, how how important is climate change? How important is sustainability? And if those things are important, are we willing to double down on them? You know how how do we include people? Would be my my last question. Is mm. is something we think about all the time? Like when I think about stages, ages, and wages, how do we figure out how those people can continue to live within our city? Yeah. Um, there's no viability on pushing those people into new communities or the peripherals. There's no infrastructure. There's nothing there to make it easier for them. If we have a single mother who lives in affordable housing but has to commute 50 minutes a day to her job, there's no viability in that. Yeah. Like the long term, yeah. you can't do that. You can't commute. You can't lose two hours a day on commuting and then pick up your kid from work and figure out how to how to manage that. Yeah. It just makes the problem like exponentially more difficult. Mm-hmm. And so, how do we actually saw the future, the city's future? In my mind, is so important because 
you know, we can talk about established areas growth, we can incentivize it, we can make it happen, but if it becomes affordable, then we've also failed because these communities should have places for everybody. Yeah. And so I think one of the biggest challenges for the development industry, for cities at large, will be what does inclusive affordable housing look like um, and how do we continue to solve that issue as it continues to escalate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think what, what you talked about there are... Um you're talking about broad, massive trends that are, it doesn't matter what a single developer or city even does, they're happening. Mm -hmm. And so just even sort of the, the mutual benefit kind of piece of it, like there needs to be solutions for the societal level, but from a strategic business perspective to get out ahead of that and see the opportunity in those trends, Mm -hmm. that's, that's a pretty big opportunity because there, there's more massive shifts that are happening probably than ever. Yeah. In especially, particularly in cities. So that's, you know, I think it, it ties back in to the idea of like, it's not an either or proposition. Yeah. yeah. And it, and you're right. It's not just happening. It's not a problem here. It's a problem everywhere. This mm-hmm. is a, this is a worldwide epidemic yeah. that we will yeah. run into about affordable housing yeah. and where people live. Our population continues to grow yeah. at, at rapid paces. Mm-hmm. And so, how how do we how do we understand what people's needs are and how they live and how the picket fence for everybody isn't viable? Mm-hmm. It may be viable for a small percentage of our population, yeah. but it isn't viable for a large percentage of our population. Or wanted? No, exactly. And so, how do we change? And part of it, yeah. like part of it, is our now requirement to change the education and explain to people yeah, they don't sure. need it. You don't you don't need it to survive. Yeah. You don't actually you won't necessarily be happier. Like we need to start informing people about, about what the outcome is. Um, and then all while trying to understand, like, you know, like I said, what is the future of how people live? Yeah. We're seeing this explosion of co-living happening, mm-hmm. um, which, which is basically single occupancy residents. Like the SORs of the world are coming back. Oh, why are they coming back? Like they were, they were an epidemic. We tore them down. We ripped those buildings out mm-hmm. as fast as we could, but now we're bringing them back. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's really interesting to see how people are trying to solve those issues of affordability, of yeah. living, of collisions, of interactions, because there, there is an issue. Uh, we have a huge aging boomer population who, funny enough, are very similar, similar in terms of wants and needs to our millennials now. Hmm. They yeah, don't yeah. want to be isolated. They want to be closer to amenities. They want to be out and about. Um, they, they don't necessarily want long-term commitments anymore. And so it's like, well, wait a second, like we, we're starting to see these two massively inverse um, demos that are starting to ask mm-hmm. for the same things without even knowing it. Mm-hmm. And so how we respond is going to be really interesting. Today's perspective is one of many in city building. Every contributor has its challenges and opportunities. If you think we missed any key points about this profession, let us know. Email us at hello at 360degree.city. Stay tuned for our next episode in the series. 360 Degree City is created by our team at Intelligent Futures. To learn more about the work we do, go to intelligentfutures.ca. I'm John Lewis. Thanks for stopping by.